You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Understanding how to use OPM is the key to building wealth quickly. Because when you understand how to use OPM, which stands for other people's money, you'll be able to acquire more than you could just using your own cash. But you have to do it right. And unfortunately, lots of people are trying to take investor money today when they don't really have the experience or know-how. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Now, most people know that banks are our financial partner. We can go to them to get financing to buy a home or commercial building. It's pretty straightforward. You agree to the loan terms, sign the docs, and they wire you the funds. You've got to pay back the monthly payments, and if you don't, they could take your property back as collateral. But as we get more advanced as real estate investors, we learn to JV, or joint venture. This means we might partner with another investor instead of a bank, often splitting the workload and the profits. But when you JV like this, and one person is doing all the work and the other is just putting up the money, this is no longer just a real estate deal. The person doing the work, otherwise known as the operator, is getting capital from an investor who is passive, which then becomes a security and falls under the Security Exchange Commission regulations. Unfortunately, too many people are taking money from passive investors without fully understanding the SEC laws. And you'll need a really good SEC attorney to truly understand these rules. Or you could start by reading some books on the topic. My guest today has been putting on events to help raise money properly. In fact, I'll be speaking at his Raising Money Summit in Denver this weekend. And he's going to share with us today how he got started. Adam Adams, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Hey, thank you for having me. So you have an unusual name. It's two first names. So that's, I guess, not that unusual, but it's two first names that are the same name. (laughs) How did that happen? Well, that is a really good question. And I will give you guys, your listeners, something that not everyone knows about me. Okay. I was born in Utah on a polygamous colony where my mother happened to be the last of six wives. And uh, when she left and she said, this isn't the the lifestyle that I'd like to live. And she took my sister and me uh, away from the colony and we needed to have a name on our birth certificate. And she didn't want to necessarily have a different last name than my sister and I. So I actually got my mom's maiden name when I was four years old. Oh my gosh. I, I never, ever in a million years would have guessed that is the reason. That is fascinating. Wow. <laughs> you could write a book on it. Yeah, I, I plan to write a few books as soon as I can get an assistant in my office to help me with it. <laughs> I understand. Or a ghostwriter, just have someone interview you and let them write it. Yes. Oh, yes. that is fascinating. Wow. Okay. Well, then what? Where did you end up oh, growing yeah. up? So I grew up in Utah, uh, just uh, without, we kind of just mainstream Utah-isms. My mom stopped going to that church, and we just kind of grew up here. Uh, We lived in Salt Lake. We lived in Provo. We lived in St. George and ended up being in Davis County. So that is up in Kaysville, about 30 minutes north of Salt Lake City. And that's where, you know, the rest of it all kind of started. We met my stepdad, who is a multifamily investor, a self-storage investor, 
an entrepreneur and he has land all over. And it was uh, his thing to try and teach me what I needed to do to be a successful young man. And I wouldn't listen to him until college when he made me listen to him. It was 2005 and my dad gifted me a piece of land that he bought off of a tax deed and he bought it for $100 and he gave it to me. And a week later he said, I need you to actually pay me a hundred bucks for that, Mm. for my taxes. And as a college student, that was too much for me. I but I committed. It took me a couple of weeks to save $100. And two years later, somebody offered me twelve grand, and I, and I sold it. And the, the return on that is pretty good. If you do the math, it's a lot of percentages <sighs> off of $100 to 12000 And so I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, oh, that yeah. my stepdad told me I had to read. And I finally read it because I saw the power of real estate, learned about Robert Kiyosaki, that he made his money as an entrepreneur and put his money into apartments. And so I said, I got to be in apartments. I started a handyman company. It was going really well right before the crash. And I started managing an apartment, which went really well right before the crash. And we, we took that apartment. I was just the property manager getting like $12 an hour, but we took that and I made the owner $1 million, literally $1 million in 12 months of managing it. Wow. And again, I was like, this is, this is incredible. So then I bought my own multifamily, got hit with the crash right in 2008. So when people say you want someone who knows what that feels like, I remember very clearly what it felt like to own a multifamily when most of my tenants, my residents couldn't pay me rent. And I was forking out money just to keep the mortgage going. But eventually, years later, as I got back into confidence with the markets. In 2015, I bought a whole bunch of different things. I I mean, I've been involved in almost everything. But uh, right now, uh, if you could fast forward to 2019, the end of 2019, we're heavily invested in large multifamily. Wow, that's quite a story. So your mom remarried then, it sounds like, and your stepdad really stepped stepped up. Yes, in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, incredible. So Getting into multifamily in 2015, that seems like it would have been a somewhat difficult time to get in because values had already gone up. So how's that process been for you to kind of find multifamily properties at this stage in the economic expansion? Really good question. My company, we brought on four extra people to help us underwrite and look for deals because the deals are much, 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 much harder to find. I mean, we when I got back into multifamily and other asset classes as well in 2015 and 16, that was a one story. But I believe that 2019 is a completely different story. It's It's been really, really difficult. I've been able to close on seven total syndications. It's 1,400 doors. But as far as like recently, most recently, we brought on bigger staff and we're, we're having a really tough time finding deals that actually make sense in case there's another downturn doing our stress test. It's really, 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 really tough to find something that makes sense, but we're, we're still pushing forward and working as hard as we can to, to get some more deals. Are you looking all over the country or just specific markets? 
One of the things that we changed about a year ago was to focus on just one market. We Mm -hmm. were going everywhere, and that's not a good idea for most teams. There's probably a few teams that can handle that easier, but all the different flights that we were taking with a few different properties that we owned that were in four different states, it was too much for us. We had to hire a second asset manager. So we don't just have one full-time asset manager. Now we had to hire a part-time assistant asset manager just to make sure that everything's getting taken care of. And we have 12 people on the team. So it's like, we'll switch from one person to another to go and fly out to different properties. It's not easy. And I don't suggest it to anyone. And we we learned our lesson, and right now we're focused on just Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, that's a great, solid, linear market. It just, it just, I don't even think it was affected very much by the last recession. Yeah, they've had a really good run for the last 10 years, growing about 1% year over year on the just population for the city. And the CoStar reports are showing good growth for the next five years. And it, it's nothing like that compared to like Tulsa, Oklahoma, even. Is Oklahoma City going to be a lot stronger than Tulsa in a downturn? We see negative, like, well, the absorption rate is, is going to be so bad that in some markets over the next three years that vacancies are going to increase to maybe 12%. And Oklahoma City is one that's not going to do that. And that's really one of our big metrics is just trying to understand. Nobody has a crystal ball, but just really trying to understand what might happen, what's the best case, what's the worst case. And, and it's really had us choose just one market for right now. Yeah, very, very sage advice. So you're um, at a lot of the same events that I'm at. You're actually putting on great events. You have a meetup in Denver, and you're exposed to some of the same things I'm exposed to, which is kind of new people in the industry raising millions of dollars and maybe not exactly having the experience. So what are your thoughts on that? And what what are some of the things that you're seeing out there uh, when you're out and about? Well, my first deal, my first syndication deal, I don't know what number of all time deals it was, but the first time we ever raised equity and used a private placement memorandum, we only had seven investors and we wanted to do it on our own. And it took us a long time, to be honest. There was three different quarters in a row where we couldn't pay out to investors. And that was not the business plan. That was not the goal. We've learned that you have to partner with other people that have done a lot more than you. And the big thing that I see is that was a 16 unit and that was 1.2 million in seven investors. I feel like there's a lot of I don't just feel this way. I see, I see many, many new investors doing what I did, but on a bigger scale and trying to raise multi-millions and not having the right partners. We got lucky and that property is finally turning around, which is going to allow us to pay out what we said we would pay, but with three quarters in a row, and that's not three months in a row, just so everybody understands, like nine months in a row, we were really stressed and and trying to figure out how to operate this and get the right management company in because there was some fraud, there was some stealing, there was some really weird ways of fixing mold by just covering it up. 
And like our hands weren't on it. We weren't in one market. We weren't, there was so much, right? And I see people doing the same thing, but on a giant, giant, giant scale. And their biggest care seems to be number one, to close deals. And number two, to keep the most of the pie. And I think those are very bad things to have happen right now Mm, in this part of the market. If all you care about is closing a deal and all you care about is holding on to the biggest amount of the pie, what that really is saying is you're not going to have the right partners that have gone there before and done that and been able to operate in these types of properties. And I believe you can go big. I want people to go big, but I don't want them to go big all by themselves. I think that that's just a recipe for disaster. And I've, I felt it and we're lucky to be getting out of that. This right now, as we're recording, we're finally in a really good place on that one property. The rest of ours, we learned, you know, we gave half of the deal to a sponsor on the second deal. And we kept doing that. We kept partnering with other people, co-sponsoring, partnering with people that maybe we only had 300 doors at the time, but we're partnering with somebody who has had 3,500 or 6,000 and has gone through all of the cycles and understands what's going to happen when you have to fire a property manager, which we took a long time to fire the property manager. We didn't, our hearts were saying we want to give her another chance. It was like our feelings got in the way. And really, when you're running a business, you can't let that happen. And mm-hmm. so we learned our lesson. And I, I feel like just to try to bring it full circle, I, I'm scared, honestly, for some of the groups when they're not at least partnering with somebody who's done a lot more than they have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the good news is that there's strong rental demand, at least for affordable housing. So there's a little tiny room for error right now, but that could change in the future. So, um, you know, investors just need to look at that when investing in someone else's deal, just make sure there's someone on the team that has gray hair, you know, that's, that's uh, not just has gray hair, but has a, a lot gray hair from experience in that exact field. Because, you know, this is what I've learned personally, too, is is anytime you try something new, do it with your own money. Um, you know, an example of that for us is we raised money at Real Wealth Network for a really cool tech company. It was a roommate matching service. And I just thought that really would go so well with what we're doing, uh, where it would be an app where people could find the perfect roommate. And then we could rent out our houses by the room and not just by the house. And so I loved the idea. We raised a bunch of money. But I didn't know the tech business, right? So it's a, it's a completely different ball game. I understood the concept of the app, but we weren't investing in dirt or real estate. So anyway, long story short, I had to I had to freeze the bank accounts because they weren't spending it the money according to what was in the business plan, and I was able to get most of the money back to the investors. But like I, I had never invested in a tech company before. So I, you know, I should have either had someone on the team who had done it many, many times successfully, you know, or just do it with my own money. So that's, I think that's wise of you that your first deals, you kind of kept small and, and wanted to really understand it. And the fact that you were a property manager, that's fantastic. That's how Ken McElroy got started. He was a property manager. And then the next obvious step was raising money and buying his own apartments and making that million dollars for himself and not uh, for the <laughs> for the landlord. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. 
it would be a different story, but it, it was good to just have a mentor there who could really just say, Adam, the next thing you need to do is, is you need to replace all the bathroom tile. You need to replace all the bathroom faucets. You need to paint the walls. You need to replace carpet. It, you know, the first few of the units that got turned, it was very, uh, I was just following orders. And then I got into a rhythm that I started to understand it. And I think it was very beneficial for it. And it will be for anybody if, if that's the way that they do it, is they go with somebody first that has been able to accomplish this before so mm-hmm. that they can really just learn the ropes and do it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So coming up, you're putting on an event to help both syndicators and investors understand the basics of these bigger deals. So tell me a little bit more about that. I know I'm, I'm honored to be a speaker there, but what can people expect from that if they can get out to, to Denver? Well, first off, I'm thrilled to have you again. Your keynote last year was fantastic, and I know you're going to just crush it again. Uh, you add so much Thank value you. when you speak. So really, yeah, yeah. Thank you. One thing that I I notice is people that have done some deals and that they have a track record and they can find good properties. They don't always have the right tools to be able to raise equity, raise money, because they focus a lot on just doing deals, which is great. But there is a part where you're going to need to raise money. So what we focus on at the summit is to just correct that for future operators who are solid and they can find great deals, but they haven't done it. Uh, They haven't looked for the money first. They haven't focused on making sure that the money was going to be there. So I've gotten a lot of calls from people that are strong operators, but they're in the final hour, the ninth inning, and they call me and say, how do Mm -hmm. I raise two more million uh, over the next week? And the whole raise was 3 million. and And it's like, really the way you do it is you start to focus a long time ago. You start to focus on actually starting to get your brand out, starting to have lead magnets. What this really just means is a piece of value that a passive investor would want. You might share with them, how do you look at a deal? How do you look at a market? And so I encourage people. So to try to sum it up, because I don't want to get long-winded and I apologize, we talk about everything you need to do to get in front of your target audience, everything that you need to do to have your passive investor opt into your list, everything that you need to do to manage the list appropriately, uh, how to run a webinar to make it more systemized. Some of the people that are speaking, they have millions of dollars ready to go to the next deal. Uh, Some of the people that are speaking have hundreds of thousands, if not a couple of million committed every single week just because they've automated it the way that we'll learn at the summit. So that's the goal is to solve those problems for real estate investors so that they can raise money on autopilot and focus on the deals. Excellent. Because you know what, what does happen is if they do run short, they're say there's, they need to raise 3 million and they only raise two. And I'm starting to see people run out and look for other people to raise money for them but they can't do that. You can't raise money for somebody else unless you're a broker dealer. So you have to actually be a part of the deal. You have to be one of the managers. So again, that's something that people got to be careful of. And, and I imagine that's one of the speakers will be going over that. Yes. Two of the speakers, two attorneys are going to share how to raise money the right way. I love that because 
You know, it's the United States of America. We have a lot of freedom. So people think, hey, I can run out and raise some money for this <laughs> apartment I want to buy. But uh, there actually are rules. And you got to follow them because you don't want to end up with orange being the new black or whatever that is. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Adam. Well, thank you so much for being here on The Real Well Show. I really look forward to seeing you soon. And hopefully some of our listeners will be there as well. We'll have the link to the event on the blog for this podcast at realwealthshow.com. Thank you, Adam. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Hopefully you can make it to Denver this weekend for the Raising Money Summit. It's going to be a great event. Hope to see you there. Have a wonderful rest of your day and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.